0: So, uh, John, you're very interested in well-being and embodiment.
1: I am, Serge. Um, I've spent a lot of time, I guess really most of my um, life now, I think, wrestling with that question. And I wouldn't have framed it that way in the past, but it's kind of becoming clear that that has been part of the issue. Um, I, In much of my sort of earlier scholarship, I was looking at um, Western theories of well-being and flourishing, and critiquing them um, from a kind of cross-cultural and historical perspective, and because they seemed to me to be as much a sort of restatement of individualism as they were some sort of objective scientific truth. So I was in particular kind of looking at the way that many of these theories of well-being really neglected aspects of life that were central both to non-Western traditions, but also to earlier periods in Western history.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um so, for instance, um, you know, that uh, one thing would be, uh current western theories put a strong emphasis on, on like emotional satisfaction but h- when you look cross culturally it's not that that's unimportant but that that gets trumped by so many other sort of virtues or ways of being a good person so that um um you know f- typically human beings have have lived in some sort of uh, worldview or understanding of the cosmos that gave their life meaning. Mm-hmm. And their role was to fulfill the position in life that was sort of, um, that they were born into. And meaning came from doing that as well as possible. And that, uh, uh, anyway, I think I'm kind of going off on a little bit well, of a tangent. T- let
0: me maybe see if I'm catching you there. Sure. So, in a way, uh, when we talk about well-being, it's one of these things that seems so obvious everybody knows what we're talking about. And you're pointing out that actually there is an implicit definition uh, in, in a Western society of what well-being is. And that implicit definition is something that tends to be more individualistic. And there are other ways to conceive of it. And, that's right. and so, uh, you know, that paying attention to that gives other dimensions uh, that may not be as individualistic.
1: That's right, exactly. And um, so for a long time, you know, I, I guess I have been trying to live out on a personal level a different understanding of well-being that's partly based on my commitment to my own spiritual practices, um, uh, Hatha Yoga and meditation in particular. And, um, but the idea of, or, or the task of formulating an alternative to some of these Western notions just seemed too daunting. And so i sort of been putting it off for years. And it feels like kind of the time is getting very close to articulate that. So one of the, I guess, the aspects for me, um I think has come to do with sort of two pieces that I guess are kind of related. So one that I would think of as connected to, instead of a stance of kind of control and mastery over one's life with the goal of sort of maximizing positive experiences uh, and minimizing negative feelings and negative experiences, that I think one of the contributions, well, that's not the right word, but one of the features that is so significant outside of our own kind of current time period is a notion that well-being has to do with spiritual surrender. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And so, so, so interesting that uh, I want to catch up a little bit because first, you know, you were saying about your practice, mm-hmm. uh, hatha yoga and meditation, and, and, and of wanting to, um, you know, to, to make sense of it. Uh, but in a way, the experience and the practice are there. So, uh, in a way, you have lived, um, what you maybe have not been fully expressing in intellectual terms. I, that's right. Um, and, that's right. and so the, in a way, what I'm noticing there is, uh, there's a primacy to the experience of it and the living it before formulating it as opposed to living you know how defining your well-being from an intellectual perspective and then using this to mm-hmm. to practice it uh you have chosen to practice life as it obviously meant made uh, some sense to you mm-hmm. and then to reflect on this practice that's right that's and, that's right and then uh you know the first point you're making is that uh, what you're noticing is that this practice is one that's at odds with the Western thinking of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, achieving mastery over things uh, in contrast to surrendering.
1: That's right, yes. And I think that shows up kind of in a number of ways. Um, So, for instance, um, in Hatha Yoga... um, one is sort of, I mean, there are many different styles, but in the approach that um, I was taught, I think a more traditional approach that makes sense to me, um, one is learning how to hold a, a posture, an asana, with the least amount of effort possible. And so that, in a sense, you're putting yourself in a difficult or stressful or awkward situation and then learning how to find ease in the midst of that. Mm-hmm. And and that comes from learning how to let go and learning how to differentiate internally what parts of us, what muscles, to be more specific, are facilitating maintaining the position and which other parts aren't necessary. Um, and learning how to release or let go of those things. So I think that was sort of an initial awareness of it. I think another way that... So,
0: so let me stop you here. So in sure. a way, what I'm hearing there is that in the practice of going to oppose, which is something not ordinary, in a way a bit of a stress in some sense, uh, instead of efforting through it, uh, it's really, uh, you know, when do, doing something difficult, Not trying to find a difficult way, but actually trying to ease into it, trying to find the way that uh, works more naturally for the muscles to to hold it with less effort.
1: That's right. And um, I was, um, after college, I spent a couple of years helping to start an, an ashram, a spiritual community in the Ozark Mountains that was based on a yogic lifestyle. And we were lucky to start working very closely with several Native American healers and um, began to do sweat lodge ceremonies on a regular basis. And the Native American sweat lodge taught me a lot about this because um, you're going into a completely dark uh, container like an igloo but made of willow branches and originally hides, but now with tarps and then bringing in very, very hot rocks into the sweat lodge. Um, and it's done as a sacred ceremony, but then sealing the uh, structure up and putting hot water on the rocks. And so it becomes extremely hot in there and, um, so hot that, uh, one tends to end up putting your face very close to the ground. Um, because right on the bottom there's maybe a half of an inch of uh where it's a little cooler <laughs> and um so again it's a process of of sort of humbling and um and really having to let go because it can be so hot that i think our normal sense of what we can endure um can't get us through that like and there's uh, I, you reach a point, I reached a point of just having to completely let go because otherwise one would just go running out of it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> in a, uh, and disrupting the whole ceremony. And yet there's something about transcending one's sense of what one can endure that is very powerful and brings about, uh, a deep sense of peacefulness and, um, um, and, and really harmony, I think, with what exists.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so the, the, what you're describing is that, uh, it's transcending what you, your, your limitations, what you normally could endure. But the, the, the going beyond is not doing it through straining and pushing, but actually, um, finding a way or having to let go into it.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Exactly. And um, and I've been I've been fortunate over the years. I one of the things I like to do for fun is to seek out traditional healers and shamans, sort of around the world, and spend time with them. And uh, not that I can even begin to comprehend all of what they're up to, but I just I find being in their presence to be um, just very meaningful and rewarding. And uh, so I spend a lot of time with shamans in Bali, and. Their sort of whole orientation to life is based on spiritual surrender. And um, for them, um, our lives get out of balance when we are um, uh, forgetting that there are sort of bigger realities that exist and forget how to harmonize with things that are... Um, deeper and bigger and uh, more powerful than sort of the individual and and our own sort of um, egoic sense of purpose or desire. Um, And so for for the Balinese, this is, uh, you know, has a very metaphysical and spiritual dimension in terms of the gods and goddesses sort of operating through human beings, and that also with the idea that human beings exist on sort of multiple levels of reality at the same time, and uh, learning how to kind of surrender to these other forces. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, whether or not that metaphysics makes sense, it it left me with a, a deep appreciation for the importance, when life gets really challenging, of not trying to impose my will upon things, but... Learning, um, in a sense, again, how to surrender, and to see what is the, uh, what is life, seeming to want from me at this moment, or what is needing to move through me.
0: Yeah, now, So I want to want to stay there a little bit because uh, you, when you say uh, surrender, you know, for many people, the word surrender is going to have a certain flavor. Uh, yes. and on the other hand what you just said right now is in a way uh what is what needs to go through me or what is uh what does life demand of me or what's my interaction with life and so in the traditional understanding of surrender that we have uh there is i and there hmm. is something bigger than me that's crushing me Yes. And as I am crushed, I have to objectly surrender. So very clearly a sense of, you know, we're two, we're separate, I'm small, and surrendering is a defeat. Yes. Um, and in the uh, model that you're describing, in a way, what needs to go through me, or what, what is, what does life demand of me, or what's my interaction with the universe? Uh, it's actually a dance and it's really a collaboration as opposed to being a surrender in a traditional sense.
1: Yes, that's a lovely way of putting it, Serge. And, you know, I think that um, the way we've been talking about it, it makes it also sound like this is, we're dealing with kind of external versus uh, me versus something external. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think where it, it shows up, has shown up the strongest for me. Is more dealing with my internal experience. So, for instance, um, uh, learning, um, uh, in, um, my wife and I separated probably 14 years ago, or my ex-wife now. And, um, when that first happened, I, part of all of this experience with both my own sort of Yoga and meditation practice, but also with, um, Native American and Balinese healers uh, made me realize that, um, what I needed to do was to really sit with what was happening internally. So the, and the sense of grief and terror and fear was just simply overwhelming and so i would though i knew enough from these other practices to know to know that trying to avoid that or trying to sort of control it um, and make it sort of go away was not the solution um, but that it was actually learning to sit with and really fully go into all of its anxiety all of the terror all of the dread and so, during this period, um, I would meditate a couple of times a day at least, and really try to embrace and go into the the depths and and heart of the intensity internally.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and you know, of course, just hearing it described that way, it sounds uh, like oh, I just meditate on this. But at those moments where uh, you know, most of us actually um, are so um, bent on avoiding it, you know, just not even aware. I mean, we have all these mechanisms to to, to escape that. Right. To not stay with it, to not be able to, to bear it.
1: hmm Exactly. You know, and um, in that moment I felt like, you know, I, my life was really in jeopardy, you know, that the, these internal feelings were so powerful and uh, um, you, you know that initially I, I was actually feeling quite suicidal mm-hmm. and uh, but over time learning how to bear and to tolerate those feelings and to allow them to move through us in sort of their own way and in their own timing I think to me that's um, that's really what I mean by surrender. Mm-hmm. and thanks things be.
0: But so, you know, we have, in a way, John of Now. Um And if John of Now could speak to John of 14 years ago, you know, going through that struggle, you know, what would John of Now be able to tell the John of then, you know, uh, to ease a little bit that moment uh, to, uh, you know, to to invite him, uh, to make it more possible for him to go into this process?
1: Mm. Well, um, that's a great question, Serge. I think, though, the John of 14 years ago was actually doing a pretty good job of it. It was probably the John of junior high school and high school <laughs> that that could have used some of that advice, because that was a really rather dark time where I was going through a kind of an existential crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but too terrified to really fully feel it. I just didn't have the resources at the time.
0: And so, so what about that? What what would the John of Now, say to the John of High School.
1: I think at that point, Serge, I was, um, I was too terrified of what was happening in my body. You know, the, um, uh, I had a existential crisis in like sixth and seventh grade where I, um, really struggled to see, um, to find meaning in life. And this was the—I was born in '62, so this was around '72, where there, as I was coming to awareness of the larger social world, there were a lot of really very difficult things happening at the time with Vietnam, and then Watergate, and um, the growing awareness of the uh, environmental degradation that was occurring, and so it, um, it, those things sort of profoundly shook me, and I didn't have much sense of optimism that the human condition was getting better or that the adults in the world really knew how to kind of address these issues. And, um, but I think I responded in a sort of more intellectual, cognitive way of searching for meaning and, um, trying to figure that out with my mind, um which wasn't all bad, and I think it's sort of, you know, I'm still doing that to some degree. But I think that the despair that I was experiencing was in my body, and I didn't have the tools to really host that despair and to integrate it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so really it was only later that I've learned how when things get really intense, to stay with what's happening in my body and, um, uh, experience it there as opposed to sort of letting the energy of these strong and dark and powerful emotions just fuel a sort of racing, um, mind mm-hmm. that doesn't stop and doesn't rest.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I certainly can identify with, with this. Um, So that sense of we tend to identify with our mind, our intellect, our ability to make sense of things. And there's, in a way, the more dire the situation, the more the sense of urgency about comprehending the situation, understanding it, making sense of it. Right. With the idea that the making sense of it is going to give us the tool um, to actually change it or control it. Exactly. And uh, and so um, what you're talking about is the shift from identifying with our logic, with our rational mind, with a capacity to understand things, and to see ourselves as a mind, body, whole organism through which... Stuff is flowing. That's right. And, 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 yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, in some of the more recent, uh, theoretical work, um, by, you know, people like D'Amasio or, uh, Mark Beckard or, um, Alan Shore that are talking about the way that the origins of the self are really in the body, in somatic and affective experience. And Freud made a similar point as did Winnicott. Um, so, uh, I think that to me has become really critical in terms of moving away from an over identification with the, the sort of Cartesian eye you know, this thinking rational supposedly rational part of us. Um, and valuing that part of us of course, but realizing that there's a deeper part of us that's more in the body. Um, you know, and this of course links up nicely with gentlemen's work on felt sense.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, as, um, as uh, I'm, I'm reflecting on the, what you were sharing about, uh, you know, your struggle as a 10-year-old, um, it feels like a similar, a similar situation to what you were describing with the sweat lodge of, um, you know, the trying so hard. To solve things with the tool you have, you know. Again, I certainly can identify with that to the point where it's so impossible that, in a way, there's a breakdown of it. Just the same way as in a resolving a koan, you know, mm-hmm. you try so hard to resolve it in a logical way until you can't, right. and then you have access to another mode of understanding.
1: Yes, you know, yes. and
0: it feels like uh, you know these episodes have, you know, kind of that quality. Of going through the experience in order to let go of one way of confronting and handling experience uh, because it you 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 hit the limitation and then you you get to something else
1: yes yes exactly exactly you know it was a funny story when I first met one of the balinese shamans that i've uh, i 've known now for about twenty years and um, worked with he um He looked at me and then he really looks at you, where it's sort of, um, he looks into your eyes and uh, sees everything, like deeply into your soul. And there's a vague sense of, oh, maybe I should put up a little wall or barrier. And then the realization that that's not going to help. This guy can just, you know, All see right. brick walls. So he looks at me and then he starts laughing and he points at my head and he spins his circle, uh, his finger around in a circle, you know, and, and to indicate that my head is, is just spinning. <laughs> and, um, and he was right. And at that point, I had already been, you know, practicing body centered, uh, uh, practices for uh, 10 years. And yet I was still very much in my head. Um, and I spent the better part of a summer walking around in rice paddies barefoot, you know, to try to learn. How to get back into my body and feel grounded
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah, and so so yeah that's uh it's it's not part of our basic experience of the world, our basic learning, we have to work at it,
1: yes, not in at least not in the contemporary west and and I think increasingly probably around the world as a whole mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, so the sort of kind of dual things about letting go, letting be spiritual surrender on the one hand, and working kind of with the primacy of the body, um, have been sort of very important and, uh, in my sense, of uh, missing elements of well-being. Um, I mean, I don't want to say that there's not a place for more Western uh, approaches because in some ways those originated historically um, for good reasons, to cope with, um, I think, orientations to life that maybe overemphasize spiritual surrender and sort of compliance um, often with um, social uh, systems that weren't um, just or contained abuses or um were overly patriarchal um you know so there's a, important reasons that the american revolution and the french revolution ic- occurred and in some ways western notions of well-being really draw on that spirit of emancipating the individual from what society expects and letting the person come to their own sense of what their life should be about and you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm, and, and, but at the same time, I think we've thrown out something really important, which many of these traditional societies have emphasized, which is um, uh, learning to um, let go and and adapt to sometimes existing realities.
0: Yeah, and as it's interesting, I'm glad that you put it in these terms because in a way, if we put it in the, in, in say the political terms of, you know, why was the revolution justified? Because we're talking about oppression. And so, uh, if we put on the one hand oppression, and then oppression goes together with surrender because that's what oppression wants you to do. It wants to surrender to that power. Right. Uh, and then obviously it makes a lot of sense to be individualistic, to rebel, to, uh, uh, you know, to, to refuse surrender. But, um, it's actually, you know, it's not surrender in general. It's surrender to what? And so uh what you're pointing out in your examples is the quality of surrender is not to surrender to a master but surrender to a vision of the universe in which you have a role that is actually enhanced by participating in the universe by letting go of the things that prevent you from participating as fully as you can
1: mhm exactly so,
0: and so uh in a way the 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 criticism of you know Rational logic is not that it's bad, but if you only are limited to it, you're not playing with a full deck. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the idea of surrender to, uh, you know, just opening up and and seeing more than the small part.
1: Right. Right. And then, so, you know, we've sort of been talking about this um, in more kind of phenomenological terms. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think then we can flip our theoretical lens and use more of a scientific physiological frame to look at some of these same things as well. So that, um, in a sense, if we think about a stance of control and mastery versus one of sort of openness to experience and letting go or letting be or surrendering to it, um, it links up, interestingly, with sort of the physiology of stress. hmm
0: hmm
1: So that, in other words, um, when we um, go to... Um, a place of letting go, letting be, or openness to experience um, it is a stance of um, that I think is linked to a more balanced sympathetic or autonomic nervous system state um, or a, more of a parasympathetic dominant n- nervous system state
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: whereas control and mastery. Seem to me to be more linked to a sympathetic nervous system state um, or flight fight response. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of um, it, and it, it sort of draws on a kind of sense of identity of me versus the world or my in group versus some out group.
0: So I want to, to stay a little more on that part. Sure. Um, so certainly I, I'm not sure I'm in the same boat fully as where you are. Um, when you're talking about, um, uh, you know, the uh, control, the mastery, um, being more in sympathetic activation, uh, I, I see the, uh, you know, just there's a lot of energy going there and the energy is, is used into, you know, holding a tight grip right so that in a way that energy is not flowing and right. the optimal use of sympathetic energy of fight and flight system is actually that it's used to flow so that uh, you can have perfect you know strength for attack or for running away but that the holding it's actually something where the energy keeps circulating inside and and you have kind of an implosion inside as opposed to uh, to putting that energy to circulate, that energy into uh, uh, into action in the world. So is that what you're talking about?
1: Yes, yeah, similarly. So we tend to think about sort of the, the stress response, um, being in a sympathetic nervous system state, flight, fight, as uh, largely about threats in the external world. But it can also be um, about threats in our internal environment. So if we live our lives sort of out of our head with the goal of maximizing positive experiences and avoiding negative experiences, and whether we do that sort of explicitly as a philosophy of life or whether we've just sort of picked that up culturally like most of us have and and operate out of that implicitly, there's a way in which we can be vigilant towards what's actually happening in our internal world. What's actually happening kind of from the neck down. And so then, and then we try to compensate with adding in more strategies of control over what's going on or distraction, um, denial, acting out. But that ends up perpetuating again, um, the, the sort of uh, activation of the sympathetic nervous system state.
0: Yeah, and and even actually your choice of word when you start to say we are vigilant about what's happening, and so the vigilance is already part of that activation. That's right. Because it's not it's not a flowing quality. It's not a, a gentle observing. There that's is right. uh, there is that uh, you know tightness about it.
1: Exactly, and the tightness is the critical thing, you know. And so when that's happening we're spending more of our life, ideally, in a vigilant, contracted state than we should. And one of the things that we're sort of learning from this physiology of stress, and like Robert Sapolsky's work in particular, is that the more time we spend in a sympathetic nervous system state, um, described sort of physiologically, or the more time we spend in a vigilant state, described more phenomenologically, the the worse our health is so that um you know the sympathetic nervous system as he describes it it's designed to be turned on for those really dire emergencies and then turned off mm-hmm. but we leave it on far too much of the time and this is linked to the sort of epidemic proportions of the illnesses in, of modernity right 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 so there's so it's
0: living in crisis basically the the permanent crisis exactly instead of the permanent revolution and uh you know <laughs> china there was a permanent crisis that we have at a gut level day in and day out
1: right so if we think instead about um like going back to what i talked about initially with a yoga pose if we can learn sort of how to find a place of ease in the midst of difficulty so that we 're not adding um, more tension more contraction onto what 's already a challenging position
0: so so let me let me just take that as a you know in a way use it as a metaphor you know what what you describe as the in the yoga pose as a as a metaphor that 's applicable to life that in a way we 're going to tend to go through life with a lot of crisis, because we're Westerners and uh, we tend sure. to perceive life in these terms. And so as we're in the midst of any of these things, maybe that little observing part that's noticing, oh, in a way, I'm in a pose. I'm doing one of these moments where uh, my dance with the universe, my dance with the world, my dance with what I perceive, uh, is going to experience myself mm-hmm. as being in crisis. Mm-hmm. And when I'm experiencing myself this way, I tend to tense up. And so to noticing and pay attention to the energy at an embodied level, not just as a... Uh, so in a way, just the same way as in yoga, you pay attention to your muscles, to your... Uh, here, that sense of, okay, what's happening inside? And with a gentle awareness that it would be nice to actually let that energy flow a little bit and release it, as right. opposed to being so tense... Right. Uh, in, in that crisis mode of vigilance and holding tight and striving, uh, so that we kind of flow through the energy instead of trying to control it.
1: Yes, yes. Um, that's really nicely put, Serge. And, and, but sometimes that actually means going into the heart of these very difficult emotions that mm-hmm. we've been trying to avoid. Um, but they're ultimately survivable. Um, you know, extreme anger, extreme rage, extreme despair, extreme grief. Um, and they're actually easier to bear when we fully experience what these things are like, when we go deeply into them. They seem to move through us more quickly. And in that stance, then, Basically, kind of what we're doing, whether it's a yoga pose that's challenging or whether it's a difficult life experience that brings some of these so-called dark emotions with them, is that we're bringing the parasympathetic nervous system online in the midst of a situation that would normally lead to even more sympathetic nervous system activation.
0: You know, as you describe it this way, I'd like to paraphrase it a little bit. You know, when you say the the sympathetic activation and the parasympathetic system online, uh, you know, I imagine in a way that um, uh, we go through something that's difficult and not only is there the difficulty, the pain, the, you know, the difficulty making room in the body for the experience, the physical experience of the emotion, but there's also the fear of going into something that is difficult. And so hence the parasympathetic is the fear of fear itself, or the fear of the sensation, the fear uh, of the experience. Uh, well, actually, that's, that's still more sympathetic. The sympathetic, I, yep. I meant the sympathetic. Right. And, and the parasympathetic would be like the gentle mentor, the parent, the mentor, the, uh, uh, the friend say, hey, you know what, this is okay. You yes. know this is, and so the parasympathetic is there to calm down that fear and right. say, "You know this is an it's, it's part of the human condition uh right. you know that kind of of pain uh it seems so intense, but you're going to be okay
1: yes, yeah, and that's such a lovely point, you know that ideally we learn about these things from our parents or Family members, or you know, a caring community that sort of holds us while we're experiencing, uh, you know, the pain of a skin knee, or the pain of heartbreak, or um, the frustration of this or that. Um, but so many of us don't get that anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we're talking about in a way that emotional literacy.
1: That's right. And Winnicott, you know, back in the forties noticed this and said that you know when we don't have the right holding environment we precociously sort of abandon our body and go up into our head to try to um uh cope with life and so that we um uh, precociously he saw this happening as early as infancy uh precociously kind of overly developed more cognitive faculties Um, and we abandoned our somatic and affective, um, core of who we are. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. this leads to what he called the false self.
0: Yeah. 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 And, and so that's where we're coming back to where we started with that sense of well-being as embodied experience.
1: Right. And that the, really the precursor for that is it, is the sense of safety Mm -hmm. and security. So this becomes to me really interesting because um, it links together all sorts of things that we tend to kind of treat separately. So obviously attachment theory um, and uh, Winnicott's work in object relations theory have also focused on the importance of safety and security. But we can start to now link that to sort of the physiology of stress and realizing that when we don't have safety and security, we spend too much of our life in a vigilant state. And the vigilance is sometimes directed externally um, and sometimes internally. Um, but that the more time we spend in a vigilant state, uh, the more time our sympathetic nervous system uh is overactivated and that compromises our physical health.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And um And I think this makes sense of some of the recent work on social disparities in health, where we're finding, like with the Whitehall study and and study sense that if you're not at the top of the socioeconomic hierarchy, your health is compromised at pretty much all levels, including your mortality rates. And the further down the hierarchy you are, the worse your health is going to be. And interestingly, the uh, at least initial ways that that was made sense of was that people at the top had a greater sense of being in control. Um, and um, But I think that that's actually kind of a very Western way of interpreting those results, and that if you sort of flip it upside down, what it might mean is that being in control might make sense in an individualistic society as a way of feeling safe and secure. But there are actually many ways of feeling safe and secure, including um, being part of an extended family, which you know is becoming something rare in the in Western uh, modern societies, or living in a universe that seems meaningful, a, a cosmic structure that holds us, um, having religious faith, or even being in a society that provides a social safety net, so that if one becomes unemployed or has a sick child, one doesn't have to worry that one's life is going to fall apart.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I want to tweak a little bit what you're saying, kind of a, saying something very similar but in a slightly different way. Um, you're you're pointing out that the you know the traditional interpretation of this kind of study is that people on the upper End of the scale have more control, and you say no. It's more about safety, but I think the uh, the tweaking, the interesting part is that people, in a way, in in a, in a in a the cultural bias is that safety is something that in a way is not controllable, and so the only variable to have is control, mm-hmm. and so we focus on that. Yes, um, and uh, actually. The but it, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's in a way uh by focusing on that we distort what it is that we need to pay attention to, because right. what the organism responds to is the sense of feeling safe or not safe, and the, and so that uh, you know of course to some extent focusing on control is going to be effective to increase in some conditions the sense of safety, right. but it's actually the confusing the two. Uh, that's right leads to uh to to trouble yes. and and so uh the point is really actually to say that while uh, you know that there is a, a value to control the ultimate point is the experience of safety mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah and then that becomes kind of an interesting metric or um index for starting to kind of reevaluate Um, how we live as a society. Because if safety and security are central to well-being, which isn't a new point, I mean, it was, you know, Maslow made that point as well as attachment theorists and stuff, but if it is at the core of um, what could be called autonomic regulation, the ability for our nervous system to spend the least amount of time in a um, strong sympathetic nervous system state, um, then we need to maybe look at, and and if in fact our mortality, um, our lifespan is dependent on the degree to which we feel safe and secure in the world versus the amount of time we spend in a vigilant state. Um, then it makes sense to start to look at our society and through the lines of safety and security.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: you know how much do we provide this for people
0: yeah, yeah. and
1: we can you know so at one level, we can you know talk about it in terms of families and parenting and 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 trying to help parents provide more of a sense a secure base for their children and and that's important, but parents can only provide. Uh, what they themselves have and experience. And it seems like um, that when you look critically, particularly at American society maybe versus some of the Eastern or uh, European societies, um, we've, you know, not provided social safety nets for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, you know, far too many neighborhoods that are dangerous, where once you step out of your apartment, you you know in many too many inner cities, you have to be vigilant you have to be looking over your shoulders all the time and there are places where one can uh, experience this sort of letting go or letting be or openness um, or surrender uh, and yet that becomes something that we all need and is critical so it becomes kind of an interesting way of Critiquing our society and asking, exploring how might we develop social policies that really try to take seriously the idea that we all need to feel safe and secure uh, more than we do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you know, the high cost of our healthcare system, one could argue, is largely linked to the fact that. Too many of us spend too much time being vigilant.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, the, the interesting part is that we're no longer just talking about safety in the extreme situation of life or death. That's right. But talking about the moment-by-moment experience of safety.
1: That's right. And,
0: uh, you know, to the extent that uh, it's so prevalent, that that sense of vigilance and that sense of not being safe, that we don't even notice it on a moment-by-moment basis. Right. And that moment-by-moment experience of lack of safety is, of course, what creates stress, even among those of us who are relatively privileged, and, of course, is even worse among people who live in a more disfavored um, kind of environment. So then it becomes a question of not just looking at the cost of major illness or the, you know, but essentially to say that, uh, you know, society is not functioning optimally because an enormous amount of the resources are wasted, uh, through dealing with the stress of, you know, that sense of lack of safety.
1: That's, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the, our health, uh, uh the, the health of our nation is ranked something like 37th in the world, mm-hmm. you know, um, which is really rather appalling given what we spend on things. But, you know, until we address the root causes of perhaps some of the health conditions that we face, which is that, again, we're spending too much time in a sympathetic nervous system state, Um or in other words, we're we're spending too much time being vigilant, and don't feel safe and secure and sort of held by life, by society, um, you know, we're going to continue to uh, um, be ranked poorly.
0: And interestingly enough, that um, there's a, a whole paradigm there, because you and I have our understanding of what feeling safe means. But to a lot of people, um, the idea of safety feels like coddling people or yes. uh, the idea of performance is equated with the idea of difficulty, with effort, with, you know, that concept of uh, survival of the fittest.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: uh, and so... Uh, and, of course, there is a value to it, like, for, for instance, the training of the, the, the Navy SEALs, where you take the people who are, you know, the most able to overcome the most rigorous type of situation. There is a certain value, if you want, certain functions in order to find, you know, the toughest people yes. to go that way. But the, for society to function optimally... Uh, there is also safety and safety not being equated with molly cuddling and uh, mm-hmm. uh and so so maybe there is a sense of r- communicating a different sense of what safety means
1: yes I, and um and that's that 's a really nice point you know and um and I think that that 's uh an ongoing work uh to to flesh that out but um so, in some ways, it gets back to sort of this idea of really being able to bear our experience and to be aware of it um, and accept it so this is you know of course what mindfulness is about
0: mm-hmm.
1: but um, uh to do that requires again a sense of safety
0: yeah, but so it's interesting because just as you start describing it this way there is um, a dimension of safety that, uh, in a way, gets more similar to what it's like to practice an extreme sport, so uh, less frightening to people who fear safety as cuddling people. You're saying, um, you know, in order to be better able to bear the unbearable, um, you know, yeah. safety is going to help you do that. So yes. we're talking about almost like practicing the extreme sport and going into high performance. Uh, and under these conditions, yeah, you can be, you can perform better. So yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's, I'm glad you
1: made that connection because there is a way that, you know, when life becomes, um, really difficult, whether we're dealing with chronic pain or an emotional experience that, um, is incredibly Challenging. It does require that sort of, um, courage of a, uh, a top athlete or a SEAL to be able to really go into that experience without disconnecting from it. Um, and, uh, there's a, there's a kind of courage and, um, willing, you know, in, in being willing to really fully enter into what life brings to us. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And so, so you know, the courage and, in a way, encouragement. So what we do as a group, as a society, uh, is, is help each other with encouragement uh, in order to go to these difficult places.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, that's the exact opposite of uh, enabling people to avoid you know difficulties enabling people to uh to 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 shrink from life
1: yes that's right
0: yes Mm. (laughs) so maybe that feels like a nice place to stop this conversation sure yeah this recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. You know, the courage and, in a way, encouragement. So what we do as a group, as a society, uh, is, is help each other with encouragement uh, in order to go to these difficult places. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the exact opposite of uh, enabling people to avoid you know difficulties enabling people to uh to 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 shrink from life
1: yes that's right
0: yes Mm. (laughs) so maybe that feels like a nice place to stop this conversation
1: sure yeah
0: This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com.